Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday morning Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ. We're glad you could join us this morning. If you're live on Facebook or YouTube or through our website, we welcome you. Uh, those outside of our uh, immediate area, we're glad you could join us. And those who are a part of our uh, regular in-person congregation, uh, it's good to, good to be able to talk to you as well and look forward to seeing you at 11 for our worship service. This morning, we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John and the stories of Jesus. And we are in chapter 11. If you'd like to open your Bibles and open to John chapter 11, we'll begin what I think is a fascinating account from John, a familiar story, but let's look at it and again, as we've done with all of these stories, see what it tells us about Jesus. John's purpose in writing this gospel is to demonstrate the uh, divine nature of Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he claimed to be. And so much of the, the text thus far has been in service of that very idea. He began this gospel differently than the other three. He doesn't tell a genealogy. He doesn't tell of the birth. He simply says that the, 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 the word was with God in the beginning and it became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And that word is Jesus Christ. And we've seen miracles, and we've heard parables, and uh, in all of those things, he is making the point that he is the Son of God, and he has said it over and over and over, that if you want to know God, you need to know me, because I am him, and he is me, and we are uh, with, uh, I was with him, and he sent me, so listen to his words through me. Now, at this time, in these chapters, remember, Jesus has started to get crossways with the religious establishment uh, of his day. He has gone, I wouldn't say into hiding, but he's laying low at this point in the story. He's trying to avoid being in certain parts of the region because he knows there are those who seek to end his life. And it's not that he's trying to avoid his life being ended. We know that that time is going to come. Already we've read him predicting that. But now uh, it's not his time. And so he's waiting until the time is right, till an opportune moment to give himself over to that. And so we find him in chapter 11 in that state, kind of, uh, kind of laying low. So let's read in chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Remember that story? Uh, he's meeting and there's all these Pharisees and teachers there and, and he's dining and uh, a woman comes and she anoints his feet with oil, and she wipes away uh, with her hair. She serves Jesus in this way, and it was, it was a bit uh, awkward, and uh, there were those who, for whom it was controversial. Well, it's this woman. He apparently has become close with uh, this family, and Lazarus is someone he cares for deeply, and we'll see, we'll see more about that in a moment. Uh, verse 3, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So Jesus has this, uh, this relationship with Lazarus, someone he loves, someone he cares for deeply, he feels a strong connection with. Now this is important because what has Jesus been saying all of this time? I am the Son of God, I have come to deliver a message, and I will be taken away from you. Uh, he's a man on a mission, and yet he has these personal relationships that you and I understand because we have those as well with one another and with the people in our life. So Jesus heard this in verse 4. He said, This sickness is not to end in death, 
but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So already Jesus is looking at this through the lens of the opportunity that it provides for him to demonstrate the power of God and his own deity. Jesus operates this way so often in Scripture. And when we read some of the other Gospels, we see healing and we see miracles. And we see them done sometimes to reach a person, to encourage them to live a holy life, to reach out to those who are hurting, who are on the margins of society, and to bring them in to his family uh, to show love. But we don't see this very clear, often, we don't see this very clear admission that uh, this is going to be uh, th this is going to be done for the purpose of demonstrating his power. I think that's kind of implicit in most of the miracle stories and the healing accounts. But in this one, he says, "You know what? This isn't going to end in death. This has happened so that I can show you who I am." Okay, verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick. He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that seems like an interesting way to phrase that. He loved these people, so when he heard about it, he just stuck around for a little while where he was. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense. If someone I love is sick, I'm, I'm there as soon as I can get there. If someone I care for deeply is, uh, is ill or near death, then I'm going to go and, and uh, see to them. But Jesus, it says, he loved them, so he stayed where he was. But you have to go back to the previous verse. He says, this sickness isn't going to end in death because God's going to be glorified by it. Now, we could take that to mean that uh, if you want to take the approach that Jesus said, well, he's not going to die because God's, uh, you know, uh, he's just going to get better. Well, if that's true, why didn't he? Because we'll see later that's not how it worked out. Uh, Jesus didn't do as he's done in other miracles where he stayed remote from the situation and provided a healing. We've seen that done. He could have easily said, okay, he's healed and just fixed it. He even says this sickness will not end in death so that, the, so that I can be glorified, so that God's glory can be seen through me. But he didn't, along with that kind of prophecy, also offer a healing. He, didn't, he let things take their course. He stayed back. He held back. Uh, and Jesus does that sometimes, and he does it here. He waits two more days after receiving the message that Lazarus is sick. Now, remember, this isn't an email. This is people traveling on foot to deliver a message. So depending on how far away this, this message has to travel, by the time he hears it, uh, the illness has already occurred, and it's, and it's perhaps uh, advanced. And we'll see later that quite a bit of time has passed. So he stayed where he was for two days longer. Then after this, he, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, this is where he's trying to avoid going. And they reply to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He says, hey, we, we, we've got time and we can go. And those who are against me are going to be against me. And those who are for me will be for me. But we need to go. And this he said to them. And after that he, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Now this is the first kind of supernatural event that's occurred in this story. Jesus receives the message that Lazarus is sick. He decides to wait. Uh, but he does so 
having made the statement that Lazarus is not going to die. This is not going to end in death. Uh, and that's what he says, to be more precise. He doesn't say he's not going to die. He says this will not end in death. And then he waits. And again, he states his purpose as the Son of Man will be glorified. This is occurring so that I can demonstrate my authority and my power. And in spite of that, he waits. He doesn't heal him from afar. He just waits. And then he says it's time to go. And despite the, the attempted discouragement from the apostles, and by the way, uh, it's nice to think that they were really concerned about his safety, but, uh, but they were also concerned for theirs. If they're going to come get Jesus, they're certainly going to come get these 12 men. And so they are encouraging him to wait, but he says, no, we have to go. And he describes it this way. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I, gotta, I have to go so I can awaken him from his sleep. So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Hey, if all this is is a nap, if all this is is some illness, and, and, and then he's going to get better. He's going to wake up again if that's all there is to it. And so Jesus then said to them, it says in verse 13, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was talking of literal sleep. Now, no one has informed Jesus that Lazarus is dead yet. At least we don't have an account of it. He finds out he's sick. He, he predicts that this will not end in death, that he, that, that he will be glorified through whatever is happening. He waits, and then he's the one that states for the first time in the text, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is no longer among the living. He, he says he's fallen asleep because for Jesus, and the way he wants to describe this, that's all it is. It's a temporary state. It is a temporary state in Jesus' mind where Lazarus is. But he, but he says plainly to them he's dead now. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, okay, let's parse some of this. He says again in a very similar way what he said at the beginning of this story. When he says that this will not end in death, it, this happens so that the Son of Man can be glorified. He then says he's fallen asleep or he's died. And I'm very thankful, Jesus says this, I'm, I'm really thankful for your sake, for all of his apostles, the ones who are with him all the time. He says, I'm thankful for your sake that I wasn't there. Because if I had been there, the, the implication is if I had been there, I wouldn't have let this happen. Now that that's interesting because it didn't he didn't have to be there in order to prevent it. Jesus could have stopped it from where he was. He's done that before, but he chose not to. So that's what we're left with is is the implication and the understanding that Jesus allowed this to happen. Jesus allowed death to take Lazarus <clears throat> for a purpose that he states here. I'm glad that I wasn't there because now you get to see something amazing. Now you get to see something really, really wonderful. We had a football coach. Uh, I never played for him. Uh, he had uh, retired from coaching before I would have reached uh, reached the age. But I was around him a lot. He still he was the athletic director in my time there. Um, but he used to have a statement whenever his uh, <clears throat> his teams would be up against it, when they would be trailing in a game or things looked like they weren't going their way. He would say to the team, "We've got them right where we want them." We've got them right where we want them. When things are looking bad, hey, don't look at it like we're losing the battle. Look at it like this is going to be an amazing display of our talent and our skill to overcome this. That was kind of his way of motivating people. Well, Jesus says something very similar here. He says he's dead, and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't there. I'm glad that 
this has happened. Because if Jesus had been there, he would have been compelled to heal him in his illness. But Jesus wasn't there, and he allowed what needed to take place to take place, and he's got death right where he wants it. He's got the apostles right where he wants them, because now he's going to show them something they haven't seen. He's going to show them something that he hasn't done yet. He's going to show them the power he has to, uh, to heal death, to overcome death, to provide for the resurrection of his friend. And so it is important for Jesus that this was allowed to happen because now he has, I guess, what we would call a teachable moment. It would have been one thing for Jesus to heal Lazarus when he was terminally ill, but it's quite another thing to raise him from the dead. And that needed to happen. He needed to demonstrate something different to them. And so he allowed Lazarus to, to die. He allowed a bad thing to happen. Lazarus may have lingered in pain. He may have been ill for, for several days. It may have been a very unpleasant experience for Lazarus. But Jesus allowed that to happen because he needed to show that he had power over death. And he says to the apostles, I'm really glad this happened because this is a good opportunity for me to show you something amazing. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. So they, They're assuming Jesus is going to go up there, and those people that are seeking to kill him, they're going to they're they're do it. They're going to succeed. And there must have been talk amongst the, the disciples that, hey, uh, we shouldn't do this. We, we, if he wants to go, let him go, but I'm not going up there. And Thomas, now isn't this interesting? Because what do we know of Thomas? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Boy, what a bum rap that is. I mean, Thomas, the, the, and, and, and we'll get to that later, but, you know, uh, we know the story. After Jesus has died, after he's resurrected, he appears to the apostles, but Thomas isn't there. You know, he went out to go to go grab uh, lunch for everybody. And they're all there, and they see Jesus, and they tell him when he gets back, we saw him, we saw Jesus, he's back. And what does he say? He says, he doesn't say, I don't believe you. He doesn't say, I'll never believe it. He says, I can't accept it until I see him. I'm not going to accept what you say uh, just on your account. I need to see him and touch him myself. And we call him for this doubting Thomas. All he asked for was the exact same thing that the other disciples received. So we call him Doubting Thomas. But here he is in this story saying, you know what? We need to go with him. If he's going to die, we're going to die with him. Now there is a statement of strong faith. There is a statement of dedication. So here's this guy that has been for all, all of history uh, you know, maligned for his asking to see Jesus physically and standing up and saying, we're going to stand beside you even through death. I think we need to rethink how we talk about Thomas. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb. This is Lazarus. had already been in the tomb four days. That's a long time for a dead body, particularly in the way that they prepared bodies. And they did some things to preserve and to, to, uh, to prepare bodies in a certain way. But it wouldn't be like what we experience today. Uh, four days is a, is a long time for a body to lie in a tomb. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, and Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Jesus says something very similar, that if he had been there, he would have been compelled to healing. They would have asked for that. 
even though Jesus wasn't required to be there at all in order for that to happen. And Jesus, had he intended him to be healed, he would have healed him. He wouldn't have allowed him to taste death, but he did. So what, 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 is, what she's saying here is, is very much our way of thinking. Sometimes, even when we see the power and glory of Jesus, we still don't see the full picture. It's greater than we can imagine. It was never in Martha's conceptualization that Jesus would raise him from the dead. She wasn't seeing the full picture. She said, if you had been here, you'd have healed him, but now he's dead. It's too bad. Well, if she had thought about it, if Jesus has the power to heal him there, why doesn't he have the power to raise him from the dead? It was just beyond her comprehension. And it would have been beyond ours too. The fact that Jesus waited, that he knew what was going to happen, and he let it happen, and he said, it's going to happen so that I can show you something. So he arrives, and Martha says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Why, you know, why did we have to let this happen? So Jesus, uh, verse 22, even now I know you, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she still has faith that Jesus can do something. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she, she knows Jesus is powerful. You can almost feel her struggling to believe in something. She says, I know God will give you whatever you ask. And what she's asking for is pray that God receives him into paradise. Pray that he will rise on the last day in the resurrection and go to live with God. Uh, and Jesus then replies to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even when he, even he, excuse me, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So Jesus is asking for a confession, a statement of faith. And she says, I, I believe that God will raise him again in the, in the resurrection. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the resurrection. I'm the one that's come to make that possible. I'm the one that's come to defeat death. And if you believe in me, then this is possible. And she says, I believe you are Christ, the Son of God. Now, throughout the first 10 chapters here, Jesus has repeatedly said, this is who I am, believe in me. This is who I am, believe in me. And now he, he, he asks for this kind of confession from her again. Do you believe this thing I've been saying? And she says, yes, I do. Jesus is demonstrating the power of confessing his name, the power of confessing his righteousness. So when she had said this, she went away with, uh, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. So they're outside of town here. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her went, uh, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, again, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and said, where have you laid him? Now this is, uh, where, where have you laid him? And then uh, they said to him, Lord, come and see. 
In verse 35, Jesus wept. That verse is commonly known in John 11:35 as the shortest verse in Scripture. It's, it's the fewest letters, fewest characters. Jesus wept. Um, that's kind of a, a bit of Bible trivia. That's how I grew up knowing it. Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, I used to have a Bible teacher uh, uh, when I was in school. I went to a Christian school, and we had Bible classes. And uh, our teacher, he had pretty difficult tests. And he would offer us a lot of opportunities for bonus. And he, you know, on the back of the test, if you wanted, you could write any verse, and if you wrote it properly and cited it properly, then he would give you bonus points. And everybody did John 11:35. Jesus wept because that was easy. That was easy. Easy bonus point right there on the test. But how important is this verse? How significant is this verse? I think deeply so. Now let's look at the story. Jesus, of all the people in this story, is the only one who knows what's going to happen. He's the only one that knows what he's going to do. Someone he loves is sick. He could do something, but he waits. Then he decides to go, knowing that Lazarus has already died. He perceives that. He has the power to perceive that, and he goes because he's died. And he says to them, it's okay that he's died because I'm going to do something great. I let this happen so I could do something great. He gets there, and he's confronted twice with the family of the deceased saying, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus must, in his mind, know and be saying to himself, but I let it happen. I let it happen because I have something important to do. I have something great and significant to do and to show you. And yet still, when he sees the grieving of these sisters, he is moved and he weeps. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what he was going to do. He even stated this isn't going to end in death. And even knowing how the story ends, Jesus still was moved to tears. There are times in our life where we are moved to emotion, even when we know how something's going to turn out. There are times when we're, I mean, it happens with death for, for us as Christians. We, we know that a faithful Christian has a home in heaven. I've been to many a funeral, preached many a funeral, where I knew that the deceased was a saved person. And yet people still cry. And sometimes we say uh, to people, oh, don't cry, don't cry. Uh, they're in a better place. Yes, they're in a better place, but they're not here with me, and that's where I am, and that's where I would like them to be. We're sad at death. We grieve death. And we shouldn't try to stifle grief for death just because that person, we may see them again in heaven. Jesus himself wept, and that's exactly the point. For all of the words that John has written to this point to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is a deity, that he is divine, that he is God in the flesh. For all of that, for all of the things in this very chapter that he points out to demonstrate that Jesus is not like us, he is like God, he takes a moment here to show us that Jesus is also exactly like us. John, in pointing out the deity of Christ, the divine nature of Jesus, also points out here his humanity that's mixed in with that. Because who amongst us would not shed tears for a loved one who had died? All of us would. And Jesus does as well. John 11:35 is the shortest verse in Scripture. 
But for its size, it may be the most important verse in Scripture. For its size, it may be the most important verse in Scripture. Because in that verse, we are informed that while Jesus is the Son of God, and while He is God, He is not separated from our understanding and our feeling and our emotion. He's not separated from our experience as human beings. He feels it too. And it's the fact that Jesus is one of us while also being of God that made him able to do what he did on the cross. When you read in the book of Hebrews about Jesus as the high priest, Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, Jesus uh, in all of these places that he needed to be as the giver of law, as the liberator of oppression, in order to be all of that, he had to be 100% God and 100% human. He had to have the power and ability to approach God on our behalf like a high priest couldn't do perfectly because they're human, but he also had to have the humanity of a high priest to understand the needs of the people in the way that the high priest could do. This verse, verse 35, is the most important verse for its size in all of Scripture. Because it informs us that Jesus Christ is human. Even though he is God, even though he is 100% divine, he's also 100% human. And his, uh, the purity of his divinity and the, the, the way in which his sacrifice will be pleasing and sufficient for God is also amplified and made more perfect, made complete by the fact that he is also human. Because he doesn't ascend to heaven to sit at the right hand of God with an ignorance about what human life is like. He's not just an alien that has come down here to observe us. He is one that has come to live with us. Not even an alien. He, he is a, of God that has come to live with us. He's not something foreign. He is one of us. But he is also from God. Verse 35 illuminates that concept for us. It shows why Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. It shows us that even though he knew what was going to happen and knew what he would do and knew what was possible, he was still touched by the emotion and the compassion. And that compassion is demonstrated on the cross because he has that compassion for us because we are Lazarus in the tomb. We are the one who is sick. We are the one who has died because of our sin, because of our failure, because of our imperfection. We're Lazarus in this story. And Jesus, like God in his patience with Israel, like God in his waiting until the right time to send Jesus to us, like God, Jesus stepped back and waited. He waited for the illness to take root. He waited for the illness to overtake the one who was sick. He waited for them to succumb to death, just as he waited for this world to succumb to the helplessness of sin and death before he sent Jesus, so too Jesus waited before he went. Knowing what he would do, even still, he did so with compassion and with love in his heart. He saw the plight of those who were suffering, and he, he acted. Jesus would do this later on the cross. Instead of Lazarus in the tomb, it would be us that he will raise. So listen to what Jesus says here. The Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So again, they're still thinking about him healing sick. 
It's not even come to their mind the possibility that he could do something more. So Jesus, in verse 38, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. You don't want to move that stone. It's going to be offensive. It's going to be offensive. Jesus said to her, did I not say that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You confess that you believe who I am, so do what I say. Do what I say. Boy, that's, that's the essence of the gospel. You believe who he is, because the Bible says over and over, if you believe in him, you'll be saved. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. But what about how we live? Well, as Jesus says, if you believe, you will act. Did I not? Did you not say or did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He's saying, move it out of the way. If you really believe in me, do what I say. That's what we're called to as Christians. So they removed the stone, verse 41. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Now, it's, it's interesting. Jesus says something, and then he explains why he's saying it to God, uh, which is fascinating to me because we do the same thing. Uh, Jesus says, I thank you that you heard me. I thank you, thank you that you have always heard me. Jesus thanks God in his prayer. He says, Father, I thank you for listening to me. And then it's almost like he steps to the side and says, I, I know you always hear me, but I was just saying it because these people are standing here and they need to know this. Uh, it's a beautiful and almost humorous sort of interaction he has with God to say, thank you, Father, for hearing me. I, I know you always do, but they're listening. So I want to make sure they heard that part. Interesting prayer that Jesus prays. So uh, I said that so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man, it is very simple, the man who had died came forth. Lazarus walked out, bound hand and foot with wrappings. That would have been the traditional coverings for a body in this time. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. Now, I want to stop there. We've got one more verse left here. Think about what all this transpired and think about how it could have gone. Think of, a, of, of another version of this story, how it could have gone. Jesus could have been sitting there and he could have perceived because of his deity and his divine nature that Lazarus was sick. And he could have thought to himself, Lazarus be healed. And Lazarus could have gotten sick and gotten better and no one would have even known Jesus was involved. Or he could have waited, and someone could have said, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And he would say, no, he's not, he's healed. I command it. And he would have been healed, and they would have found out about it and learned about it, and they would have all been amazed. Or Jesus could have been told he was sick, and he could have left immediately to get there. He could have healed him if he got there while he was still sick, or he could have raised him if he had just died. But Jesus waited. And he waited to allow Lazarus to go ahead and die. He waited long enough so that when he got there, there would be others present. I mean, there, there's, there's a ritual. There is a typical way in which this, these people would have grieved. Just like today, the loved one dies, uh, folks in church bring food to the house so that the family can be fed while they're grieving. That's kind of our culture. That's kind of our tradition. They had the same thing. Uh, and so Jesus, in his timing made it so that there would be people present other than the immediate family 
people would have come to console these, this grieving family. So instead of going right away or not going at all and just healing it, he waited. And he went at the right time, at exactly the right time. He went at exactly the right time when someone he loved had been sick and had died. He let that transpire so he could get there at the right time so there would be witnesses. God waited while this world was trapped and entangled in sin, sickness, and death. He waited. He sent Jesus when the time was right so that those who needed to would see him and witness him and believe in him. And Jesus did the same thing. This story is a microcosm of what would later happen in the crucifixion. Jesus came at just the right time. At just the right time, Paul says in the book of Romans. He came and he taught us and he died for us and he wept with compassion over us and our plight and he raised us from the dead by overcoming death on our behalf. And we are unbound from the clothes, the grave clothes. The last verse here in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now that's an ominous sort of to be continued at the end of the chapter, which is where we're stopping today. But I want you to consider something in terms of application of this story. First of all, the amazing timing and the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ. He knew exactly the right time to go to fulfill his purpose. We don't always see the purpose of God. We don't always understand the purpose of Jesus and his timing, but, but, but he has it. God has a timing and a purpose, and we may not always understand it. We may wish he did it differently, but he's going to do it in a way that glorifies him the most. He's going to do it at the right time. And he did it for us at the cross, and these words unbind him and let him go. Now, think about your life. Have you felt dead and buried by your sin, by your insecurities, by your weaknesses? Have you felt dead and buried before in your life, waiting on someone to release you? Even as a Christian, we know Jesus has released us from the bondage of sin and death. We believe that. But how many of us live with the guilt and the burden of how we've lived? How many of us live with the guilt and the burden of our past? Lazarus was raised from the dead. The health concerns had been addressed as he walked out of that tomb. He was alive again. The, the, the decomposition of the body was reversed. He was restored, and he walked of his own volition out of the tomb. And yet, he was still wearing the grave clothes. And Jesus said, you've got to take those off of him. He doesn't belong in those anymore. Why? Because he's not dead. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen all of us have failed. Jesus restores our failure into great success and glory by the power of his blood. But how many of us are walking around in our grave clothes? How many of us are still battling with sin? How many of us are living with the guilt and the pain and the burden of that? Jesus has released you. Why are you still wearing the grave clothes? You don't belong in that guilt. You don't belong in that pain. You don't belong with that burden. Why? You're not dead anymore. Stop dressing like it. You're not dead anymore. Be unbound. Be free. Be free of the trappings of death because you have believed in Christ unto life. I believe that's the lesson in John chapter 11. 
and a beautiful chapter because it shows us, first of all, the immense power and divine nature of Christ, but also his humanity. And it's, huma it's his humanity that makes it work. It's his humanity that makes it work, makes him who he was, who he is, and to do what he did. But we still have this boiling little subplot here that there are those seeking to get rid of him, to end his life. We'll finish chapter 11 and move into chapter 12 next week when we meet here again. Wherever it is you're meeting from, we encourage you to be here for that. We thank you so much.